Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. 19. My dear Wormwood, I have been thinking very hard about the question in your last letter. If, as I have clearly shown, all selves are by their very nature and competition, and therefore the enemy's idea of love is a contradiction in terms. What becomes of my reiterated warning that he really loves the human vermin and really desires their freedom and continued experience? I hope, my dear boy, you have not shown my letters to anyone. Not that it matters, of course, anyone would see that the appearance of heresy into which I have fallen is purely accidental. By the way, I hope you understood, too, that some apparently uncomplimentary references to Slubgob were purely jocular. I really have the highest respect for him. And, of course, some things I said about not shielding you from the authorities were not seriously meant. You can trust me to look after your interests, but do keep everything under lock and key. The truth is, I slipped by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy really loves the humans. That, of course, is an impossibility. He is one being. They are distinct from him. Their good cannot be his. All his talk about love must be a disguise for something else. He must have some real motive for creating them and taking so much trouble about them. The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to find out that real motive. What does he stand to make out of them? That is the insoluble question. I do not see that it can do any harm to tell you that this very problem was a chief cause of our father's quarrel with the enemy when the creation of man was first mooted and when even at that stage the enemy freely confessed that he foresaw a certain episode about a cross our father very naturally sought an interview and asked for an explanation 
The enemy gave no reply, except to produce the cock and bull story about disinterested love, which he has been circulating ever since. This our father naturally could not accept. He implored the enemy to lay his cards on the table and gave him every opportunity. He admitted that he felt a real anxiety to know the secret. The enemy replied, I wish with all my heart that you did. It was, I imagine, at this stage in the interview that our father's disgust at such an unprovoked lack of confidence caused him to remove himself to infinite distance from the presence with a suddenness which has given rise to the ridiculous enemy story that he was forcibly thrown out of heaven. Since then, we have begun to see why our oppressor was so secretive. His throne depends on the secret. Members of his faction have frequently admitted that if ever we came to understand what he means by love, the war would be over and we should re-enter heaven. And there lies the great task. We know that he cannot really love. Nobody can. It doesn't make sense. If we could only find out what he is really up to, hypothesis after hypothesis has been tried, and still we can't find out. Yet, we must never lose hope. More and more complicated theories, fuller and fuller collections of data, richer rewards for researchers who make progress, more and more terrible punishments for those who fail. All this pursued and accelerated to the very end of time cannot surely fail to succeed. You complain that my last letter does not make it clear whether I regard being in love as a desirable state for our human or not. But really, Wormwood, that is the sort of question one expects them to ask. Leave them to discuss whether love, or patriotism, or celibacy, or candles on altars, or teetotalism, or education are good or bad. Can't you see there's no answer? Nothing matters at all except the tendency of a given state of mind in given circumstances to move a particular patient at a particular moment nearer to the enemy or nearer to us. Thus, it would be quite a good thing to make the patient decide that love is good or bad. If he is an arrogant man with a contempt for the body really based on delicacy but mistaken by him for purity, and one who takes pleasure in floating what most of his fellows approve, by all means let him decide against love. Instill unto him an overweening asceticism, and then when you have separated his sexuality from all that might humanize it, weigh in on him with it in some much more brutal and cynical form. If, on the other hand, he is an emotional, gullible man, Feed him on minor poets and fifth-rate novelists of the old school until you have made him to believe that love is both irresistible and somehow intrinsically meritorious. This belief is not much help, I grant you, in producing casual unchastity, but it is an incomparable recipe for prolonged, noble, romantic, tragic adulteries ending, if all goes well, in murders and suicides. Failing that, 
It can be used to steer the patient into a useful marriage. For marriage, though the enemy's invention has its uses, there must be several young women in your patient's neighborhood who would render the Christian life intensely difficult to him if only you could persuade him to marry one of them. Please send me a report on this when you next write. In, in the meantime... Get it quite clear in your own mind that this state of falling in love is not, in itself, necessarily favorable either to us or to the other side. It is simply an occasion which we and the enemy are both trying to exploit, like most of the other things which humans are excited about, such as health and sickness, age and youth, or war and peace. It is, from the point of view of the spiritual life, mainly raw material. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. And now a word from our sponsors. 20. My dear Wormwood, I note with great displeasure that the enemy has, for the time being, put a forcible end to your direct attacks on the patient's chastity. You ought to have known that he always does in the end, and you ought to have stopped before you reached that stage, for... As things are, your man has now discovered the dangerous truth that these attacks don't last forever. Consequently, you cannot use again what is, after all, our best weapon. The belief of ignorant humans that there is no hope of getting rid of us except by yielding. I suppose you've tried persuading him that chastity is unhealthy? I haven't yet gotten a report from you on young women in the neighborhood. I should like it at once. For if we can't use his sexuality to make him unchaste, we must try to use it for the promotion of a desirable marriage. In the meantime, I would like to give you some hint about the type of woman. I mean the physical type, which he should be encouraged to fall in love with. If falling in love is the best we can manage. In a rough and ready way, of course, this question is decided by, for us by spirits far deeper down in the lower archy than you and I. It is the business of these great masters to produce in every age a general misdirection of what may be called sexual taste. This they do by working through the small circle of popular artists, dressmakers, actresses, and advertisers who determine the fashionable type. The aim is to guide each sex away from those members of the other with whom spiritually helpful, happy, and fertile marriages are most likely. Thus we have now for many centuries triumphed over nature to the extent of making certain secondary characteristics of the male, such as the beard, disagreeable to nearly all the females. And there is more in that than you might suppose. As regards the male taste, we have varied a good deal. At one time we have directed it to the statuesque and aristocratic type of beauty, mixing men's vanity with their desires and encouraging the race to breed chiefly from the most arrogant and prodigal women. 
At another, we have selected an exaggeratedly feminine type, faint and languishing. Oh, so the folly and cowardice and all the general falseness and littleness of mind which go with them shall be at a premium. At present, we are on the opposite track. The age of jazz has succeeded the age of the waltz. And we now teach men to like women whose bodies are scarcely distinguishable from those of boys. Since this is a kind of beauty even more transitory than most, we thus aggravate the female's chronic horror of growing old, with many excellent results, and render her less willing and less able to bear children. And that is not all. We have engineered a great increase in the license which society allows to the representation of the apparent nude, not the real nude in art, and its exhibition on the stage or the bathing beach. It is all fake, of course. The figures in the popular art are falsely drawn. The real women in bathing suits or tights are actually pinched in and propped up to make them appear firmer, more slender, and more boyish than nature allows a fully grown woman to be. Yet, at the same time, the modern world is taught to believe that it is being frank and healthy and getting back to nature. As the result, we are more and more directing the desires of men to something which does not exist, making the role of the I in sexuality more and more important, and at the same time making its demands more and more impossible. What follows, you can easily forecast. That is the general strategy of the moment. But inside that framework, you will still find it possible to encourage your patient's desires in one of two directions. You will find, if you look carefully into any human's heart, that he is haunted by at least two imaginary women, a terrestrial and an infernal Venus, and that his desire differs qualitatively according to its object. There is one type for which his desire is such as to be naturally amenable to the enemy. Readily mixed with charity, readily obedient to marriage, colored all through with that golden light of reverence and naturalness which we detest. There is another type which he desires brutally and desires to desire brutally. A type used to draw him away from marriage altogether, but which, even within marriage, he would tend to treat as a slave, an idol, or an accomplice. His love for the first might involve what the enemy calls evil, but only accidentally. The man would wish that she was not someone else's wife and be sorry he could not love her lawfully. But in the second type, the felt evil is what he wants. It is that tang in the flavor which he is after. In the face it is the visible animality or sulkiness or craft or cruelty which he likes, and in the body something quite different from what he ordinarily calls beauty, something he may even in a sane hour describe as ugliness but which by our art can be made to play on the raw nerve of his private obsession. 
The real use of the Infernal Venus is, no doubt, as prostitute or mistress. But if your man is a Christian, and if he has been well-trained in nonsense about irresistible and all-excusing love, he can often be induced to marry her. And that is very well worth bringing about. You will have failed as regards fornication and solitary vice, but there are other and more indirect methods of using a man's sexuality to his undoing. And by the way, they are not only efficient, but delightful. The unhappiness produced is of a very lasting and exquisite kind. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Now some fucking sponsor. 21. My dear Wormwood, yes, a period of sexual temptation is an excellent time for working in a subordinate attack on the patient's peevishness. It may even be the main attack, as long as he thinks it the subordinate one. But here, as in everything else, the way he must be prepared for your moral assault by darkening his intellect. Men are not angered by mere misfortune, but by misfortune conceived as injury. And the sense of injury depends on the feeling that a legitimate claim has been denied. The more claims on life, therefore, that your patient can be induced to make, the more often he will feel injured and, as a result, ill-tempered. Now, you will have noticed that nothing throws him into a passion so easily as to find a tract of time which he reckoned on having at his own disposal unexpectedly taken from him. It is the unexpected visitor when he looked forward to a quiet evening or the friend's talkative wife turning up when he looked forward to a tete-a-tete with a friend that throw him out of gear. Now, he is not yet so uncharitable or slothful that these small demands on his courtesy are in themselves too much for it. They anger him because he regards his time as his own and feels that it is being stolen. You must therefore zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own, let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. Let him feel as a grievous tax that portion of his property which he has to make over to his employers, and as a generous donation that further portion which he allows to religious duties. But what he must never be permitted to doubt is that the total from which these deductions have been made was, in some mysterious sense, his own personal birthright. You have here a delicate task. The assumption which you want him to go on making is so absurd that if once it is questioned, even we cannot find a shred of argument in its defense. The man can neither make nor retain one moment of time it all comes to him by pure gift. He might as well regard the sun and the moon as his chattels. 
He is also, in theory, committed to a total service of the enemy. And if the enemy appeared to him in bodily form and demanded that total service for one, even one day, he would not refuse. He would be greatly relieved if that one day involved nothing harder than listening to the conversation of a foolish woman. And he would be relieved almost to the pitch of disappointment if for one half hour in that day the enemy said, Now you may go and amuse yourself. Now if he thinks about his assumption for a moment, even he is bound to realize that he is actually in this situation every day when I speak of preserving this assumption in his mind. Therefore, the last thing I mean you to do is to furnish him with arguments in its defense. There aren't any. Your task is purely negative. Don't let his thoughts come anywhere near it. Wrap a darkness about it. And in the center of that darkness, let his sense of ownership in time lie silent, uninspected and operative. The sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. Much of the modern resistance to chastity comes from men's belief that they own their bodies. Those vast and perilous estates pulsating with the energy that made the worlds in which they find themselves without their consent and from which they are ejected at the pleasure of another. It is as if a royal child whom his father is placed for the love's sake in titular command of some great province under the real rule of wise counselors should come to fancy he really owns the cities the forests and the corn, in the same way as he owns the bricks on the nursery floor. We produce this sense of ownership, not only by pride, but by confusion. We teach them to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, and my country to my god. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots and my ownership. Even in the nursery, a child can be taught to mean by my teddy bear, not the old imagined recipient of affection to whom it stands in a special relation, for that is what the enemy will teach them to mean if we are not careful. But the bear I can pull to pieces if I like. And at the other end of the scale, we have taught men to say, My God, in a sense not really very different from my boots, meaning the God on whom I have a claim for my distinguished services and whom I exploit from the pulpit, the God I have done a corner in. And all the time the joke is that the word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say, mine, of each thing that exists, and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them, whatever happens. <laughs> At present, the enemy says mine of everything, 
on the pedantic legalistic ground that he made it. Our father hopes in the end to say, mine, of all things, on the more realistic and dynamic ground of conquest, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. And now more sponsors. <laughs> 22. My dear Wormwood, so your man is in love and in the worst kind he could possibly have fallen into. And with a girl who does not even appear in the report you sent me, you may be interested to learn that the little misunderstanding with the secret police, which you tried to raise about some unguarded expressions in one of my letters, has been tidied over. If you were reckoning on that to secure my good offices, you will find yourself mistaken. You shall pay for that, as well as for your other blunders. Meanwhile, I enclose a little booklet just issued on the new House of Correction for Incompetent Tempters. It is profusely illustrated, and you will not find a dull page in it. I have looked up this girl's dossier and am horrified at what I find. Not only a Christian, but such a Christian. A vile, sneaking, simpering, demure, monosyllabic, mouse-like, watery, insignificant, virginal, bread-and-butter miss. The little brute, she makes me vomit. She stinks and scalds through the very pages of the dossier. It drives me mad. The way the world has worsened. We've have had her to the arena in the old days. That's what her sort is made for. Not that she'd do much good there either. A two-faced little cheat, I know the sort, who looks as if she'd faint at the sight of blood and then dies with a smile. A cheat in every way. Looks as if butter wouldn't melt in her mouth and yet has a satirical wit. The sort of creature who'd find me funny, filthy, insipid little prude, and yet ready to fall into this booby's arms like any other breeding animal. Why doesn't the enemy blast her for it if he's so moonstruck by virginity? Instead of looking on there grinning, he's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure, and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Ugh! I don't think he has the least inkling of that high and austere mystery to which we rise in miserific vision. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has a bourgeois mind. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. Not that that excuses you. I'll settle with you presently. You have always hated me and been insolent when you dared. 
Then, of course, he gets to know this woman's family and whole circle. Could you not see that the very house she lives in is one that he ought never to have entered? The whole place reeks of that deadly odor. The very gardener, though he has only been there five years, is beginning to acquire it. Even guests, after a weekend visit, carry some of the smell away with them. The dog and the cat are tainted with it, and a house full of the impenetrable mystery. We are certain it is a matter of first principles that each member of the family must in some way be making capital out of the others, but we can't find out how. They guard as jealousy as the enemy himself, the secret of what really lies behind this pretense of disinterested love. The whole house and garden is one vast obscenity, it bears a sickening resemblance to the description one human writer made of heaven. The regions where there is only life and therefore all that is not music is silence. Music and silence, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell, though no longer ago than humans reckoning in light years could express no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces. But all has been occupied by noise, noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile noise, which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We have already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end, but I admit we are not yet loud enough or anything like it. Research is in progress. Meanwhile, you disgusting little... Here the manuscript breaks off and is resumed in a different hand. Thank you for your patience. In the heat of composition, I find that I have inadvertently allowed myself to assume the form of a large centipede. I am accordingly di dictating the rest to my secretary. Now that the transformation is complete, I recognize it as a periodical phenomenon. Some rumor of it has reached the humans, and a distorted account of it appears in the port Milton with the ridiculous addition that such changes of shape are a punishment imposed on us by the enemy. <sighs> More modern writer, someone with a name like Pshaw, has, however, grasped the truth. Transformation proceeds from within and is a glorious manifestation of that life force, which our father would worship if he worshipped anything but himself. In my present form, I feel even more anxious to see you to unite you to myself in an indissoluble embrace. Signed, Toadpipe, for his abysmal sublimity under Secretary Screwtape, T-E-B-S, etc. Now here's some ads. 23. My dear Wormwood, through this girl... And her disgusting family, the patient, is now getting to know more Christians every day, and very intelligent Christians, too. 
for a long time. It will be quite impossible to remove spirituality from his life. Very well, then. We must corrupt it. No doubt you have often practiced transforming yourself into an angel of light as a parade ground exercise. Now is the time to do it in the face of the enemy. The world and the flesh have failed us. A third power remains, and success of this third kind is the most glorious of all. A spoiled saint, a Pharisee, an inquisitor, or a magician makes better sport in hell than a mere common tyrant or debauchee. Looking round, your patience, new friends, I find that the best point of attack would be the borderline between theology and politics. Several of his new friends are very much alive to the social implications of their religion. That in itself is a bad thing, but good can be made out of it. You will find that a good many Christian political writers think that Christianity began going wrong and departing from the doctrine of its founder at a very early stage. Now, this idea must be used by us to encourage once again the conception of a historical Jesus to be found by clearing away later accretions and perversions and then to be contrasted with the whole Christian tradition. In the last generation, we promoted the construction of such a historical Jesus on liberal and humanitarian lines. We are now putting forward a new historical Jesus on Marxian, catastrophic, and revolutionary lines. The advantages of these constructions, which we intend to change every 30 years or so, are manifold. In the first place, they all tend to direct men's devotion to something which does not exist, for each historical Jesus is unhistorical. The documents say that they say and cannot be added to. Each new historical Jesus, therefore, has to be got out of them by suppression at one point and exaggeration at another. And by that sort of guessing, brilliant is the adjective we teach humans to apply to it, on which no one would risk ten shillings in ordinary life, but which is enough to produce a crop of new Napoleons, new Shakespeare's, and new Swift's in every publisher's autumn list. In the second place, all such constructions place the importance of their historical Jesus in some peculiar theory he is supposed to have promulgated. He has to be a great man. In the modern sense of the word, one standing at the terminus of some centrifugal and unbalanced line of thought, a crank vending a panacea. We thus distract men's minds from who he is and what he did. We first make him solely a teacher and then conceal the very substantial agreement between his teachings and those of all other great moral teachers. For humans must not be allowed to notice that all great moralists are sent by the enemy not to inform men, but to remind them to restate the primeval moral platitudes against our continual concealment of them. We make the sophists. He raises up a Socrates to answer them. Our third aim is, by these constructions, to destroy the devotional life for the real presence of the enemy otherwise experienced by men in prayer and sacrament, we substitute a merely probable, remote, shadowy, and uncouth figure, 
one who spoke a strange language and died a long time ago. Such an object cannot, in fact, be worshipped. Instead of the creator adored by its creature, you soon have merely a leader acclaimed by a partisan, and finally a distinguished character approved by a judicious historian. And fourthly, besides being unhistorical in the Jesus it depicts, religion of this kind is also false to history in another sense. No nation and few individuals are really brought into the enemy's camp by the historical study of the biography of Jesus. Simply as biography, indeed materials for a full biography have been withheld from men. The earliest converts were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection, and a single theological doctrine, the redemption, operating on a sense of sin which they already had. And sin, not against some new fancy dress law, produced as a novelty by a great man, but against the old platitudinous universal moral law which they had been taught by their nurses and mothers. The Gospels come later and were written not to make Christians, but to edify Christians already made. The historical Jesus, then, however dangerous he may seem to be to us at some particular point, is always to be encouraged. About the general connection between Christianity and politics, our position is more delicate. Certainly, we do not want men to allow their Christianity to flow into their political life, for the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. On the other hand, we do want, and want very much, to make men treat Christianity as a means. Preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement, but failing that as a means to anything, even to social justice. The thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy demands, and then work him on to the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice, for the enemy will not be used as a convenience. Men or nations who think they can revive the faith in order to make a good society might just as well think they can use the stairs of heaven as a shortcut to the nearest chemist's shop. Fortunately, it is quite easy to coax humans round this little corner. Only today have I found a passage in a Christian writer where he recommends his own version of Christianity on the ground that only such a faith can outlast the death of the old cultures and the birth of new civilizations. You see the little rift? Believe this not because it is true, but for some other reason. That's the game. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. 
That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk